You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you will, turn to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to wrap up the book of Ruth today. And uh, next week, back by popular demand, Revelation. Um, I, I, I kind of framed that in, in a prayer request because uh, Revelation chapter 10, where we'll be next week, and quite frankly, to the end of the book, is some of the hardest studying that I've, I've done in a long time to try to rightly divide God's Word. So um, stick in with us. It, it, I'll just tell you, just a pre- prelude here, uh, the next few weeks uh, going to be a lot of, well, judgment because that's where we are in the book of Revelation. So uh, I hope to be able to tie all that together and show you what God's purpose is, is in all of that. And, and what's amazing is, is the book of Ruth is going to help us to understand Revelation even better. So let's pick it up, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the man replied, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your goodness and grace. And Father, we recognize that your word is very clear that our role as a church, my role as a shepherd, is to simply sow the seeds, the seeds of truth, the seeds of the gospel. And that, Father, we're to water it, we're to look after it, but ultimately, Lord, the growth, the change of heart that comes as a result, that's your work. So, Father, we rely on you to change lives. We rely on you to help us to grow up. We rely on you to help us to mature and become more like you. So, Father, I pray that this morning we would, we would be able to spread some seed, that it would take root, and that you would bring about the growth that is needed in our life. Sometimes, Father, that requires some pruning, some things to be cut out of our life. Sometimes that helps. Sometimes, Father, the pathway forward is simply to see you and your greatness and your beauty. And sometimes, Father, it's, it's just a willingness on our behalf to trust you even when we don't have all the answers. So, Father, guide us in your word this morning that is perfect and pure and true in every way. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. As some of you know, um, I like to backpack and I like to hike and I like to uh, go out into the woods and be out there in the woods for as many days as my body can handle it, which is getting less with each passing year, um, but I enjoy it. I enjoy the time alone. Um, 
I enjoy uh, just being out in the woods, especially the mountains, and, and just being able to, to accomplish some goals. Last October, I had the opportunity to go up and hike in, in the uh, Smoky Mountain Park. And before I go on one of these hikes, I always like to do my research. I like to know where my campsites are going to be. I like to know how many miles per day that I'm going to be walking. And I need to know how much food I need to take. I need to know how much elevation change there is. Because obviously, if I'm going to be going up a lot of hill, I need more food for fuel to be able to get done. And as I was studying, I, I always check out the park rangers, their website for the particular park that I'm going to and see what kind of updates there are on the trails. And there was this one particular update that they had posted where there had been a mudslide and some erosion on one part of the trail. Now, this trail that I was going to be hiking over several days was, was really a well-known trail, um, a popular trail. And um, this particular area that the park rangers were talking about was blocked because you couldn't hike through there. And this happens a lot. So what they were going to do is divert you off of the main trail, and for about a mile and a half, you had to kind of just hike around to get back onto the main trail. Now, this has happened before. It's not anything new. And so I was expecting this. And then I, I kind of checked out some blogs where there's people who've hiked it recently who can kind of give me some insight about where on the journey is the block, where is the diversion, where is the detour, and then, and then what does that detour look like? You know, information helps when you get out there. And the most, more information you can get, the better off you'll be. So I knew where the, the detour was on the trail, and I knew that some of the bloggers had said that when you take this detour, this detour is not marked very well. Well, that's a little disconcerting because a lot of our state parks, a lot of the trails aren't marked very good. But the reason you know you're on the trail is because the trail looks like this aisle. It's kind of marked where people are, have been walking for years. It's kind of pressed down. You know, the, the limbs are kind of cleared out. So you can kind of look ahead and know that's the trail. So when they say we're going to get off the trail and then you add to that, that that trail's not marked very well, then you get a little bit anxious about that. So my hope is, is that I'm just going to be able to see where people have been walking that's walked up ahead of me, and it'll all work out. So we're hiking this trail. I get to where the barriers are set up, and there's a big sign that says, this way. Didn't really say anything. There's an arrow pointing to my left. So I thought, okay, I was expecting this. No big deal. No problem. Now, I knew that the main trail I was on is going north, and I knew my destination is north. I knew that. So when I walk off from the main trail, and I'm, I'm on this detour, I walk about 100 yards and everything's fine. I can see where people have been walking, no problem. After about 100 yards, it starts getting a little bit dicey. So I'm looking at just a forest, and there's limbs and briars and trees. There's a little stream there, and I cannot tell where the trail is at all. There's no markings. On the main trails, when you, when you hike, depending on what trail you're hiking, they will, they will put on the trail what's called blazing. It's a... It's basically can be a round circle painted on a tree of a certain color. So if you're hiking a trail, you know that this trail is marked with blue blazing, then you always look for a blue circle, and it's usually about every quarter of a mile. And when you see that, you go, oh, okay, I'm on the right trail. Or when you come to a trailhead where there's an intersection, there's signs there, you know you're right where you're supposed to be. Well, when you get detoured off the main trail, there's no markings, and about 100 yards in, and I've got a mile and a half to go on this detour, I can't tell... I can't feel anything. Now, when life throws a detour, and by the way, everyone's life has a detour. You have the, the main trail, right? Which is, this is how I expect my life to go. 
I expect that, you know, I'm going to have a good job. My marriage is going to be fine. My kids are going to grow up. They're going to be healthy. Uh, everything's going to work out. That, that's our perception of the main trail, that, that that's what I'm expecting. As we walk out life, there are certain markers that we're looking for. That we're, things are working out the way we, we want them to work out. But then every single life that's ever been lived, there's a detour. And when we get detoured, we get off the main trail, what we expected. Now we're in something we didn't expect. Now we're in something we didn't plan for. Now we're in something that has blindsided us. Now, now that, that detour could have been a choice you made. It could have been a mistake that you made. It could have been a choice that you make that you shouldn't have made, but nonetheless, it's thrown up a barrier on your main walk through life, and now you're on this detour. It could be circumstances you had no control over. But nonetheless, you're no longer on your main trail of life. Now you're in some kind of wilderness, and you're looking around, and you're going, oh my goodness, how did I get here? And inevitably, this is what happens next. This is what happened to me on that detour in the woods. You start second-guessing yourself. You start... Second-guessing things you know to be true. I know that if I continue to go north, and I've got a compass, I know that if I continue to go north, that that main trail is going to intersect with where I am, regardless if this is the trail or not. I know that I'm going to end up right where I need to be. I know that, but in that moment, I'm second-guessing. Should I keep going this way? Should I go this way? That looks a little clearer, but maybe that's a deer path. Maybe that's not the actual path. Or, or, hey, it looks a little clearer over there. Maybe I should go over there. I know that's not north, but m- maybe it'll work out if I go. Or maybe I should just go back to the main trail, and, or maybe I should just head back to the parking lot. Then here comes the next set of things that run through my mind. What am I doing out here? <laughs> I could be at home right now with this 30-pound backpack off my back, streaming Netflix. What, what, why did I come out here to start with? What drove me out here? If I knew it was going to be this hard, I would have just stayed at home. Well, I knew it was going to be that hard. By the fact, I knew before I went there was going to be a challenge. But man, it's in that detour that we begin to second guess everything. And listen to me and hear me clearly. If you don't have an absolute north in your life, you will sit down right there. You see, the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do in a detour is stop. The worst thing you can do when life throws a barrier, whether it be your choice or something else, the worst thing you can do is when you get off on the detour is simply say, I'm done, and sit down. What if I had just sat down? Well, my wife would have had to call out the search parties. That would have been kind of embarrassing. (laughs) Here I am just sitting in the woods because I'm scared to take another step. Some of you have already stopped. There's a whole lot of people that stopped after covid when I, look at the, when I look at the church as a whole, post-COVID, I know you're here, I, I know you're sick to death of hearing pre-COVID, COVID, post-COVID, I know you're sick to death, but just stick with me for just a moment. COVID was a barrier that got threw up in some people's lives that no one was expecting. None of us had the idea, none of us were expecting that businesses would be shut down, that you'd be working from home or even losing your job or not even able to report to work. You had no idea that you were going to be immersed in a hospital all day long with people who are deathly ill and that you're wondering, am I going to catch this next? Am I going to be the next one in the ICU? You had no idea. And there's a whole lot of people that when that barrier came up and their life got detoured, you know what they did? They stopped. And they're stopped to this day. They're still not able to function. 
because they don't know what to do out in this place that they never planned for. They don't know what to do when the trail is not completely clear. If some of y'all are control freaks, there wouldn't probably be any in this room, but just in case there might be a control freak in the room, I'm speaking to you right now. Maybe they're online. They're not here today. They're online watching. It drives you insane when you don't have the path marked clearly. You, you freeze up because this is not what I planned for and this is not what I had written down on my piece of paper on my bullet points and therefore I don't know how to move forward so I just don't. Ruth and Naomi had the detour of all detours in their life. I mean, three funerals. And in their culture, as we've already said, that, that devastated them. But not only did they have a, a detour, Boaz also has one. Uh, Boaz, getting older, all of his buddies are married now and have families, and Boaz doesn't. And he's thinking that this is the detour in his life. It just is what it is, and he's never going to be able to be married, never have children, and that was a big deal in Israelite culture. So you have Boaz here who's got a big detour in his life. You've got Ruth and Naomi who has a big detour in their life, and and then we see God in behind the scenes here, knitting together this beautiful story. And it raises a question, a big question. And that is this. Is the detour really a detour? Is the stepping off of the main path onto the side trail, is that really a side trail? Was it for Naomi and Ruth? Well, we're going to find out today because in chapter 4, everything that's been culminating in the story is going to kind of come together in chapter 4. What we have here is a story that's much more than a love story. It's a love story. What we have here is, is more than just two widows whose life is going to be restored miraculously and beautifully through the hand of God. Oh, it's much bigger than that. Boaz accepted the challenge from Ruth. Remember, Ruth goes down to the threshing floor. This is a big risk. This is a big risk for Ruth. She goes down to the threshing floor, and it's basically she confronts Boaz with the reality that he is the Gael. He is the kinsman redeemer, and he has a responsibility to fulfill. Not knowing how that was going to turn out, not knowing if this was going to be yet another big detour, because it could have been. It could have been a huge detour if Boaz had looked at Ruth and said, I want nothing to do with you or the land. But amazingly, beautifully, Boaz being an honorable man, and also the fact that him and Ruth, well, there's something going on here that we don't see in the pages of Scripture clearly, but they've spent a lot of time together. The, the four chapters that we read, we often read these stories as though it's happening one thing right after another, that this whole story takes place in about a week. Not so. This is months and months that have gone by. And out of that, a relationship has developed out of, between Boaz and Ruth. But remember, Boaz thinks, well, there's no way that this young woman would have anything to do with me. Well, that night cleared all of that up. And Boaz accepts the responsibility of being the kinsman redeemer. But there's one big problem. And he drops this on Ruth in chapter 3. He says to Ruth, you know, there's another relative that's closer than me. And he's actually the kinsman redeemer, and, and I have to go to him first. I, I can't just take this on and, and be right with the Lord and be right with the law, so I've got to meet with him. And in chapter 4, it, it spells out this meeting, and there's some historical stuff going on here that's just a little odd when we read it. 
But nonetheless, what we're going to see in chapter 4 is how God has been working out all things to bring about a beautiful, beautiful ending to a story that didn't start off so beautiful. It's been said that, that we don't truly begin to live until we begin to find out what our purpose is. And I've met 60-year-olds who still haven't found their purpose. And it's a sad thing. And they're desperately trying to find it because they know they've got less life ahead of them than they've got behind them. So they are desperately looking for, why am I here? But that's not just something that is relegated to the 20-somethings. You know how it is when you're in your 20s, you're trying to figure this thing out. You're trying to figure out what is my career and what am I going to do in my life? Am I going to college? Am I going to trade school? What am I going to do? And eventually you kind of get some clarity on that. You find, a, you find a path and you begin to walk that path. And next thing you know, maybe marriage comes along and a family. But then eventually you get to this place where you kind of settle in and you begin to realize my purpose is, how would you feel in that point? Something you're passionate about. Something that God has made you for. It's been said that when we find that, it's when we begin to live life to the fullest. But often the way we define the fullest life is a life that is free of trouble and hardship. Quite frankly, we think the full life is the life without detours. We think the life, the full life, is the life that is clearly marked, and we just simply walk the path with no detours. All through Scripture, what makes Scripture so beautiful is all the detours that we see in the lives of the people in front of us. So this morning, I want to look at, is the detour you're on right now? Is the detour you're on, is it truly the detour? Or is it the path that God has called you to walk? I think that's a very important question to wrestle with. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz has gone to the gate and he sat down and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. So let's understand what's happening here. I know this is hard to imagine, but long before the internet and Google, and Facebook, and email, and phones, and all of that, how would a community do business? How would, you, how would you do a business transaction? How would you get in touch with someone to do a business transaction? Well, in Boaz's day, this is how they would do it. In Bethlehem, there was walls around the city. There was one gate that you would come in and go out of. And in any given day, throughout the day, Every inhabitant of that city that you're looking for would travel through that gate, either to go out into the fields or they're coming back from the fields. So Boaz, in his culture, looking for this relative, who is the closer relative to Naomi and Elimelech, he's looking for this one particular relative. So what does he do? He goes to the gate and he sits down. Now, if you were to walk through a gate, this gate, during this particular time, here's what you would see. You would see groups of men sitting around the gate. And what's happening is they're doing business transactions. They sat at the gate, waited for the party to come through, pull that party off, pull some witnesses around, you sit down, and you negotiate. Maybe, maybe it's a harvest, maybe it's a field, maybe it's a piece of land, maybe it's a marriage. But around the gate, this was like a beehive of activity, and that's where the business transactions would happen. So Boaz goes to the gate. Now, as we've seen all through the book of Ruth, there are no happenstances. There are no coincidences. So right there you read in the text that Boaz goes to the gate, and then all of a sudden here comes this near relative that he's been looking for. Again, God is working behind the scenes. So Boaz turns to him and says, hey, come over and sit down. We need to have a discussion. And then Boaz, uh, because this is going to be a transaction, he pulls together ten elders 
that are around the gate. And they sit down. And Boaz is getting ready to drop on this relative, well, some pretty big news. Look at verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, so this is Boaz speaking to this relative. We don't have his name. He's just called the Redeemer because he is the nearest relative to Elimelech. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now there is all kinds of pitfalls with that verse right there and, and what is actually happening. So on the one hand, Naomi, because of the culture, Naomi actually didn't have the right to sell a piece of property. So what's going on here in verse 3 where it seems as though Naomi's getting ready to sell a piece of property and that's causing a problem within the family? Well, let me give you some background. So within the nation of Israel, the land that was given to them by God, these families divided that up, the tribes divided the land up, and then those, those lands were divided up among families. And so Elimelech and Naomi had land that they owned. Now, when they left Bethlehem to go to Moab to look for food, because remember, there was a famine in the land. Their family was not able to feed themselves. So they made the choice, whether good or bad, they made the choice to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. Now, when they did that, they probably, more than likely, surrendered their right to a piece of land. And someone else, possibly outside the family, acquired that land, which means that while Elimelech and Naomi are out of the land, this other person takes over the rights of that land, plants it, sows it, reaps the harvest, keeps the profit for himself. So while Naomi and Elimelech are in Moab, this other person, who is an Israelite, is taking care of the land. Now when Naomi and Elimelech are in Moab, Elimelech dies... Their two sons die, and we know the story. Ruth, the daughter-in-law, sticks with Naomi, and they come back. Well, when they come back, this land is no longer in the family. But there's an even bigger problem. Naomi doesn't have the ability or the right to be able to purchase that land back into her family. She's poor. Ruth is poor. Well, guess what? God had made provision in the law for such a circumstance as this. We're not going to go back there and look, but I'm going to give you two texts that you can read on your own. The first one is Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 34. Let me explain what's happening in that set of law. In that set of law, God says very clearly to the nation of Israel in that particular provision of the law, he says, God says, I own the land. That's a very important fact that we need to get down here. Here's what God did with the promised land. God said, I own the land. And he marked out the territories of this particular piece of land that he was going to allow the Israelites stewardship over, well, perpetually. Through the, Abra through the promises of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, God says, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you children, I'm going to give you offspring, but this land flowing with milk and honey, I'm going to let you live in that land. But that land belongs to me. That land is not to be given to others. That land is to stay within the nation of Israel. And by the way, let me just take a side note here. The land that God defined and the land that God handed over to the Israelite nation is still belonging to the Jews to this day. It's God's land. He gave it to them to use, and it belongs to no one else. That is the land that was given to the nation of Israel, period. Now, God wanted that land to stay within the nation of Israel. So when Elimelech dies and the two sons die, there is no family that owned the land to be able to redeem the land back. 
Naomi has no financial ability or even any say to be able to get this land back. So this land is in the hands of someone else, someone outside the family. So here's what's supposed to happen. Leviticus 25 says that a near relative of Elimelech is supposed to step in and is supposed to take that land back on behalf of the family. It's supposed to get that land back in the line of Elimelech. That's what Leviticus 25 says. Now notice what he says to this near kinsman. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it to say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here in the presence of the elders of the family. In other words, this relative is supposed to bring that land back into the family name, back into the family line of Elimelech. That is his role. That is what the law dictated. But if you will not, then let me know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So then Boaz says to this relative, look, if you're not willing to, I'm next in line, and I'm going to step in as a family member of the, of the line of Elimelech, and I will bring the land back into that line. Notice what this man says. He says, I will redeem it. In other words, this near relative says, I'll take on that responsibility. Now, there are some commentators who speculate that Ruth might have been sitting somewhere close by. The text doesn't say it, so don't know. So we're just speculating at best. But imagine if she was. Imagine she was sitting somewhere with an earshot and she hears this guy that she doesn't even know say that he's going to become the kinsman redeemer. That he is not only going to purchase the land back, but there's a second aspect to what a kinsman redeemer was supposed to do. And now Boaz gets into this. I think Boaz was rather strategic in how he's presenting this. He talks about the land first and the guy's all in. Oh yeah, I'm going to definitely take the land. Yes, I want to acquire the land. Notice what he says next, verse 5. Then Boaz said, well, the day you buy it, buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now we get into another text, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. In Deuteronomy 25, not only is God concerned about the land staying within the nation of Israel and those families, but get this, he's also concerned about the name of a family continuing to live on. When Elimelech and his two sons died, basically the line of Elimelech was about to die at that point. All you have is Naomi and this Moabite woman, Ruth, who's committed her life to stay with, with Naomi. Well, God had made provision in the law to say, I want the name of this family to continue. And the only way that could happen, well, is for children to be born. So the other part of this requirement of the kinsman redeemer is to not only take back the land, but also to take on, well, the wife. Make Ruth your wife so that she can bring about offspring and perpetuate the name. Well, the Redeemer, when hearing this, verse 6, he says this, I cannot redeem it. So when Ruth becomes part of the equation, he says, I'm done. I think that Boaz might have been a little bit on the inside of this. I think that's the way he presented this. He's like, no, I'm out. And here's the reason. He says, lest I impair my own inheritance. What that tells us is, is that this relative was married, had offspring, had land, and to acquire a Limelech's line and his land was going to mess up, well, his plan, his path. He says, I'm not willing to do it. And in a very strange set of verses, uh, the custom of that day is when one person was giving up the rights to another person, they would take their sandal off and hand the sandal to the other person. It was almost like the same thing as us signing a, 
on the dotted line, you're signing a mortgage and you sign all those paperwork. Well, in this setting, it was taking off the sandal. And in that moment, the witnesses are watching and he hands the sandal to Boaz and basically says to Boaz, Boaz, you can be the kinsman redeemer. You can fulfill that role. But I deny my responsibility. I let go of my responsibility as the first in line to do so. There were three qualifications for a kinsman redeemer. First of all, he had to be a near relative. He had to be somebody that was close to, they had to be a family member. Now the law specs, specifies that the first one to be the kinsman redeemer would be the brother of Elimelech. Apparently that brother, either he had no brothers or that brother was not alive, but the near kinsman redeemer, we don't even know who this guy was because he passes off the pages of scripture at this point. We don't even know his name. We just know that he was the near relative. So you had to be a near relative. Number two, you had to be willing to pay the redemption price, which means you had to be willing, well, to lay out some income to be able to get this land back in the family line, but you also had to be able to be willing to take on a wife and all that was required of that. The third thing, not only did you have to have the means to do it, you had to be willing to do it. You had to be willing to take this on. This relative was not. Boaz is. He's already made the commitment to Ruth that if, he, if his number comes up, if he's the kinsman redeemer, he will fulfill that role. Now we jump down to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. We started off this story with three funerals. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion died in Moab. And I would imagine that, that when that happened, we're not told in Scripture, we're not told what the feelings necessarily were of, of Ruth and Naomi when they had three funerals back to back, but I would imagine that you would, that Naomi's heart and Ruth's heart would be thinking, why is this happening to me? Why, why is my plan for my life not working out the way that I wanted it to? We had a plan. The plan was is that I was going to live out my days with Elimelech, and we were going to live happily ever after, and, and now we've got these two Moabite daughter-in-laws, and they've married their sons, and they're going to live happily ever after, and Naomi's thinking, man, I'm going to have a house full of grandkids, and man, everything's going to be this late. We're going to have all the food we need. We're going to have our own home and our own land, and we're going to do what we need to do. Do you hear that story? Do you hear that path? Have you, have you made plans like that? And for Naomi, when this big old roadblock comes up, the death of her husband, the death of her two sons, if you remember, we get a little bit of insight into Naomi's heart. She, she begins to get bitter and angry. She begins to blame God. That's another result of being on the detour. We get off the main path of what we thought was going to be our life, and now we're off in this place where we didn't think we'd ever be. A doctor just told us some bad news. Our spouse came home and said, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Our children that we raised in the church are no longer attending and care less about the things of God. We find ourselves in this place of wilderness. This is not what we planned. This is not the path I wanted, yet this is where I am. And in that moment, not only can we get anxious, not only in that moment can we get depressed, but also in that moment we can get very bitter and angry with God because God's not doing what we want Him to do. God, you know the path I have marked out. Why would you detour me? put me in this situation. Naomi, if you remember when she came back home, nobody even recognized her. They're like, is this Naomi? And she's like, don't, don't call me that. Because I went away full. 
I came back empty. I had my life planned out, but all that's gone now. And all I have left is bitterness. You know what else? It's God's fault. It's his fault. My, dad, my husband died, my sons have died, and all I've got is Ruth the Moabitess. This is God's fault. And Naomi says, I'm bitter. Call me Mara. Oh, Ruth, a Moabite woman who, who had no stake or claim in the nation of Israel, looks at, looks at Naomi and says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I'm going to go. And even if I go all with you all the way to death, then so be it. But I'm not leaving your side. Ruth, not knowing what was going to happen next, not knowing the nation of Israel, not knowing about Jehovah God, not knowing the customs of Israel, well, is in her own wilderness. And then they, they come in and, and, and they got to have food. They, they got to survive. And Ruth just goes out into a field and it just happens to be the field of Boaz. And it just happens to be someone who's a near relative. And all through this story, we hear, we see roadblock after roadblock. We see the potential of disaster when Ruth goes into that threshing floor. And when she begins to confront Boaz with the reality of his responsibility, that thing could have went south. That thing could have went off the cliff. He could have looked at Ruth and said, I don't want anything to do with you. Three funerals has now led to a wedding and the birth of a son. I'll remind you also that Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years in Moab and they had no children. But now all of a sudden, in that, in that space between verse 12 and verse 13, what have we had happen? We've had Boaz step forward, purchase the land back, bring it back into the line of Elimelech. There's been a wedding. He and Ruth have married. And now Ruth has just had a son. So we've gone from three funerals to a wedding and the birth of a son. And all of that because of a detour. All of that because Naomi's plan didn't work out the way that she thought it should. All of this because all of a sudden Ruth and Naomi find themselves in a wilderness that they didn't plan for, yet God is working in the background in all of these details to bring about the best for Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi and for his glory. But there's something else happening here you need to know about. There's a, there's a grand story of all of this story. This story is more than just a man and a woman who fall in love. This story is more than just gaining back a field and gaining back uh, you know, a name for Elimelech and his line. It's more than that. It's far more than that. And the, the story that God is weaving together here, the story that, that God has been working out has been not in spite of the detour, detour, but through the detour, through the change, through this side road that no one planned for. Naomi was bitter and empty, and God's going to fill her up and bless her. I found this interesting. Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 4, Ruth is referred to as the Moabite wife, the foreigner, the, far, the foreign Moabite woman, the wife of Malon. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 10, she's referred to as the foreigner. She's the outsider. She's now in Israel, but she's an outsider, and everybody knows that she's the Moabite woman. Well, then by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 11, you have Boaz saying to Ruth, Ruth, you are a worthy woman. 
You're a woman of respect and honor. And Ruth, everyone in the community is talking about your commitment that you made to Naomi that you didn't have to make. So we've gone from just a Moabite wife to a worthy woman. And look at chapter 4, verse 15. Look at this. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, now these are probably the same women that saw Naomi come home those months or maybe even years earlier who saw her and saw her as empty and bitter. Notice this, what they say, verse 14. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Naomi, blessed is the Lord who didn't leave you in the wilderness. Blessed is the Lord who didn't leave you out there to yourself. Blessed is the Lord who was working out his plan and his purpose and his will throughout all the details of your life. He's not left you without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in, in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Do you hear what they, you hear what these women are saying? They're saying that this offspring that God has provided, this blessing, has now restored Naomi, has brought life back into Naomi's empty spirit and empty soul. God has moved through the circumstances of her life, the hardship, the detour, and it's brought about an incredible blessing. And these women say something that, quite frankly, is unique in all the Old Testament. These women look at Naomi and say, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the one who was outside the nation of Israel, who in that moment said, your God is going to be become my God. That woman has become to you, Naomi, better than seven sons of Israel. That's incredible. I mean, in the nation of Israel, there's nothing greater than a family that had seven sons. And these women look at Naomi and say, Naomi, you have been blessed to such a degree through this Moabite woman that this one son, this one grandson that you've been given, Ruth has been to you seven times greater than seven Israelite boys born to an Israelite family. She went from being the Moabite wife to being blessed beyond any women in Israel. Naomi went from being bitter to being blessed. Naomi went from being empty to being full. Here we see the greater story. Look at verse 18. I don't want this to, to be left out because it's incredibly important. What's God up to in this story of Ruth? Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered, fathered Ram. Ram fathered Adamadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Now up until this point, the only names we really recognize maybe is Boaz. But Boaz and Ruth have a son, they name him Obed. The next name should kind of come a little clear. Obed fathered Jesse. Now, who is this guy named Jesse? Well, Jesse, when we jump over in the book of 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel is told by God that there's a king that he has set aside for the nation of Israel. And that this king resides in the house of Jesse. So Samuel goes down to this Jesse, Jesse who is the, the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. He goes down to this household and Jesse has a house full of boys. And the Samuel, Samuel the prophet, looks at Jesse and says, Jesse, the king of Israel is in your house. So Jesse starts bringing all these, all these sons out. And Samuel's like, nope, it's not him. No, it's not him. No, it's not him. And he runs them all through. And 
Samuel says to Jesse, hey, Jesse, is this all your sons? Well, no. I've got a teenager out in the field minding the sheep. But it couldn't possibly be him. And Samuel says, bring him in. And in walks this scrawny teenage boy by the name of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz. So get this. Ruth and Naomi hit the biggest detour a life can have. Three funerals. And in their culture, it was even worse than that. They were destitute without anything. The biggest detour in their life has now turned out to bring about the birth of Messiah. Here's how it happens. You've got David out of the line of Judah, and you track that all the way down. You remember when we were at Christmas and I walked you through that text you thought was boring until I preached on it? Now you think it's the greatest text ever? Just joking. Matthew 1, that genealogy that you thought was just a whole bunch of names that didn't really mean anything. Now we see that Boaz... And Ruth are listed in that genealogy. And what they thought was a detour in her life actually turned out to be the very will of God to bring about the king of the universe born in Bethlehem. The very same city. The very same city where they live. It's amazing. Let me give you some perspective on this. So if you, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to do that. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, there we have the fall, right? We have Adam and Eve eating of the fruit, cast us all into sin. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve, and therefore we're all born into sin. And that was a result of the choice they made in that garden. But when God comes down to speak to Adam and Eve, to bring judgment, punishment, God looks at the serpent. And the serpent, he, he says something very interesting to that serpent. He says, there's going to be a seed of the woman. In other words, somewhere down in time, there's going to be a son born, and, and Satan, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going you're to inflict some damage on him, but let me, let me be very clear. God says to the serpent, he's going to crush your head. Talking about Jesus who would be born. Later on, you get to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to enter into a covenant agreement with you. I love you, and I'm going to set you apart and your family apart and all the offspring. And that's what we know to be the Israelite nation, the Jewish people. But in that covenant promise, he says to Abraham, Abraham, there's going to be an offspring, an offspring, one offspring that comes from your line that is going to be a blessing to the entire world. Was it Isaac? Was it Jacob? It was Jesus in the line of Abraham who would provide the good news to the entire world. You fast forward a little bit, and you get to the story of, uh, you get to the story of, uh, Isaiah prophesying to the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel is just about, well, they're just about to give up. They, they, they've turned to idolatry. And, and so, so Isaiah paints this picture of the nation of, of Israel, and he says, it looks like a, a forest of trees that have been cut down. Now, well, once forest that was alive and well, now it's just a bunch of stumps. And when you look across it, there's no life to be found. And then Isaiah says, there's this one stump, and get this, he says, it's the stump of Jesse, the stump of Jesse. And in this barren wasteland of cut down trees, there's one stump, and out of that stump is a little shoot of growth. Just a little, just a little green life. And, and, and Isaiah says, from the stump of Jesse, one will come who will be the Redeemer. Fast forward to Daniel. Daniel interpreting visions and dreams. 
King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about a statue and, and then there's this big stone that rolls down the mountain and hits the statue and the statue is crushed to powder. And then that's the end of the dream. And Daniel interprets the dream for, uh, for Nebuchadnezzar and the dream is really talking about all these kingdoms that would rise in power and then fall. Rise in power and then fall. But, but then it says that this, this, this rock that was hewn out of the mountain, that this king, this kingdom that will come, will crush every other kingdom. There'll be never be another kingdom that will overcome this particular king and his kingdom. Of course, that was the imagery of Jesus Christ, the righteous king, who every king will bow and every nation will lay down everything at the feet of this king. Daniel saw that in that dream, in that imagery. Fast forward to Bethlehem, this exact same city where Ruth has been gleaning so they wouldn't starve to death. And from a, a young girl named Mary, a son is born. The God-man, God with flesh on. He grows up and he's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And in that moment, one of the rare moments in all of Scripture, God speaks, and he says, God speaks audibly. In other words, the people around the river that day heard God say this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That son goes out and he begins to give sight to the blind. I think of Bartimaeus who's laying by the side of the road calling out, son of David, son of David, son of David, would you give me my vision back? And he heals him. At the tomb of Lazarus, man been dead for four days, his body's already decomposing, and with a few words, this same Jesus says, come forth, and, and, and a dead man walks. This same man who, who heals the blind, raises the dead, raises lame people back to where they can walk and run, this same Jesus who hangs on a cross publicly, this same Jesus who resurrects publicly an empty tomb, this same Jesus who meets in the upper room with his disciples, showing them the scars in his hands, yet he's alive, this same Jesus who on a hillside ascends into the clouds, and he says to them, go be witnesses of all that you've seen. That same Jesus, his life, his birth, tracks all the way back to a little city called Bethlehem to a Moabite woman named Ruth who happens to get up one day because she's hungry and needs food and her mother-in-law needs food and she just happens to walk into a field owned by Boaz who just happens to be her kinsman redeemer. Folks, there are no coincidences. There are no happenstances and God is weaving together a beautiful story in your life in spite of the detours that you've had to suffer. And all of it. What if, what if the detour you're in right now, the divorce you never planned for, the loss of job that you never could have planned, you worked at that plant, you worked at that company for years, and all of a sudden they let you go. What if the path you had marked out was never the path you were meant to walk anyway? What if the detour, what if the detour is the path? What if where you are right now is exactly where you're meant to be? What if in that place where you can't see the trail, you can't see the markings, you don't, you're not really sure what your next step is? What if in that moment, right there in that moment, in that place of questioning, in that place of hurt, in that place of pain, what if that's where God has ordained you to be in eternity past? Does that not change everything? Sure it does. And I can tell you right now, the worst thing you can do in that place is quit. The worst thing you can do in that detour is sit down. 
The worst thing you can do is throw up your hands and just simply say, well, I can't trust God anymore. It must be his fault. And stop. You've got friends and you've got family who've done exactly that. They've quit. They've stopped. What about you? In that place of hardship and questioning, in that place where I was on that trail and I didn't know exactly which way to go, you know what, you know what got me back to that place where I knew where I was? You know what got me back? Knowing where north was. Knowing that, that north doesn't change. North is that way. My compass is saying north is that way. And I know that if I go north... Now, I'm going to end up right where I'm supposed to be, right where I'm supposed to be at the right time. And so, therefore, what kept me moving forward was the fact of this one truth, that if I keep going this direction, it may be small steps, it may be hard, it may hurt, there may be briars involved, and I still may be a little bit unsure. But one thing I know, north has not moved. Do you have a north in your life? Do you have an absolute in your life? What is it? If it's anything other than God, it's not an absolute. If it's anything other than the Redeemer himself... The kinsman redeemer, if it's anything other than him, you don't have a north. You've got a substitute. And let me tell you, when you're in that place of detour, if you don't have something real in your life, you will quit. This kinsman redeemer, Boaz points to a greater kinsman redeemer. You see, to be a kinsman redeemer, you, you had to be a near relative. Well, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus comes down from heaven and he walks among us. That he reached out to Gentile and Jew. He was no respecter of persons. He was our near relative kin. He came and he lived among us. He walked among us. The writer of Hebrews says that he suffered in every way, tempted in every way that you and I are. Yet he, he didn't fail. He didn't sin. So, so Jesus is that near relative. He is that one we see in the Gospels. He is our near relative. But not only that, does he have the ability to be our redeemer? Does he have the resources to redeem? Does he have, well, the wealth to be able to redeem us? Well, the payment that was required was perfect and pure blood showing a fulfillment perfectly of the law of God itself, a righteous fulfillment. But not only that, somebody had to die. Somebody had to take the wrath of God. Jesus was willing to do both. Not only did he fulfill the law on our behalf, but he also was perfect in every way, and the blood that he shed was a perfect and pure blood, untainted by the sins of Adam and Eve and the line of destruction from the fall. Not only did he have the capacity to do it, his blood being a sufficient ransom and payment for our sins. Not only that, this kinsman redeemer was willing to do it. He willingly stretches out his hands at Golgotha and says this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He put up no, he put up no, 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 no pushback. He didn't fight back. He didn't, he didn't call down the legions of angels. He simply fulfilled his role as kinsman redeemer. And you may wonder why. It's for you to understand that there is a path for you to walk that has been laid out in eternity past. The, pay, the payment has been paid. The path is before you. And what is required of you next is faith. For those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus, your next step, your next step is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's, that's your next step.
So what's it going to be? We're going to follow the path the world has cut out for us? Is that going to be your north? Good luck with that. Let me tell you where that leads. Based on the authority of God's word, destruction. Or you're going to have an absolute defined north in your life, and that's none other than our kinsman or redeemer, Jesus Christ. And for those of you who've already moved from death into life, let me ask you a question. The detour you've got right now, the thing that got you off the path of what you had all figured out, that detour you're on right now, are you going to sit down and quit? You're just going to give up? Is that the option? Are you going to come back to what you know to be true? That your kinsman redeemer loves you. That your kinsman redeemer may have allowed, has certainly allowed this detour in your life to teach you some things right now in that hard place that you're in. So maybe it's time to get up and trust him. Maybe it's time to get up and take a step. Maybe it's time to forgive. Maybe it's time to get back in God's word. Maybe it's time to return to him in prayer. Maybe it's time to worship him again. Maybe it's time to tell somebody else about what Christ has done for you. Maybe it's time to be grateful again. Maybe it's time to trust him again. Father in heaven, thank you for the story of Ruth and Boaz. But Lord, we ultimately know that you are our kinsman redeemer. Jesus, we, we couldn't have redeemed ourselves just like Ruth and Naomi couldn't. Somebody from the outside with the resources and the willingness had to come in. And Lord, you did exactly that. You did it with incredible glory and beauty. You did it with love and grace. And Lord, you are our north. When this world doesn't make sense, when our circumstances don't make sense, when I can't see a clear path ahead, when I don't even know exactly what you're asking me to do, when it seems like you're, you're distant, when it seems like I'm out here all by myself, Lord, you are that true north for me. And Lord, what you're asking me to do in that moment, in that detour, is to trust you to get up, to walk with you, to not worry about the path I was on, to not worry about my plans for my future, but, but to trust you with the very next step of faithfulness and obedience. That's what you're asking us to do. So Father, for those who have found, them, found their lives in a detour, something they could have never planned or even prepared for, Pray, Father, that they would know their true north and find comfort there. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.